Hi, everyone. This is Erica Spicer Mason, a writer and editor with Becker's Healthcare. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. I'm excited to be joined by two guests today. We have Kevin Colleton, the founder and CEO of Curation Health, and Nick Redding, Curation Health's chief product officer. Today, we'll discuss how clinical workflows and processes are evolving in value-based care. With that, Kevin and Nick, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Erica. It's an honor to be here and uh, to be able to speak with the Becker's audience. Uh, my background, founder and CEO of Curation Health, I, with Nick, have had the great privilege of working together a long time. Uh, and we get the we have the gift of, of focusing our attention on solving one problem all the time, which is how to make it easier for organizations to transition to value-based care with support, success, and sustainability. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Good morning from my end, Erica. Uh, uh, nice to speak with you and with the with the audience. Um, as Kevin said, we've we've worked together for uh, quite some time, um, and I've been in the the, the product development space for. A little bit over a decade, but but really specializing in the domains of provider engagement and clinical integration strategy. So, uh, just to give you and the folks listening in a little bit of my background. Thanks for for talking with us this morning. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for being here, and I'm really excited to speak with you today about value based care, which we know is continuing to really gain traction in healthcare. But at the same time, there are so many changes taking place that can sometimes make it challenging for providers to achieve the aims within that model. So looking forward to digging into this topic today. Um, but to get us started, Kevin, I think you might um, be able to help kind of set the scene or set some context for this, but I'm wondering if you can say how some of the changes that we've seen in the payment landscape are affecting healthcare organizations' levers for success in a value-based care model. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the The changes are being driven primarily with the changes in the reimbursement model, but the need to manage those two processes is really important to think about the workflows and to think about how organizations need to engage the individuals at the point of care in sustainable value-based care success. I think the perfect example is in a fee-for-service world, the providers in their practices were, were mostly focusing their attention on who are the patients that are here today and, and likely who are the patients that will be in our clinic tomorrow. In a value-based care world, you have to scale that up across all of your patients across a calendar year and managing and having a prospective mindset. That's at the, at the biggest picture change and an obvious one. I think the challenge is we're never going to have a clean cutover for most organizations where all of the patients move to the value-based care model or all of the patients remain in a fee-for-service model. Most of the organizations we're partnered with and we get the privilege of a front row seat to their transition are challenged by living in two worlds at the same time, the, the classic analogy of a, a foot in two canoes. And that makes it complicated to design workflows that are repeatable and easy because there's a tremendous amount of cognitive load associated with figuring out which patient maps to which programs and how do I organize the pre-visit activities and the point of care activities and the post-visit activities between two very different uh, paradigms. And on top of that, within value-based care, that segment of, of, a, of a practice is 
patients that map into that world, that itself continues to get more complicated. There's a drastic amount of change. There's program, programmatic change and regulatory change and clinical compliance change and expectation management of the patients. And all of this uh, put together makes it very challenging to sustain practice and deliver maximum value to your patients in your community, but also have all of the key stakeholders benefit from, from the, uh, the value-based care paradigms. So the goal is simplicity. How do we distill this down into the easiest actions that organizations can take, providers can take, and their care teams can take to maximize the care of the patients, but also get appropriate reimbursement for the care they're rendering? Yeah, if I could just pile onto that, I think, you know, simplicity uh, there is, is kind of the operative term. Um, there are sweeping changes that have been introduced by BBC incentives and, and, and various program structures over the last uh, uh, a decade plus, but they all bring us back as we think about um, ultimately how do we help providers to um, navigate um, some of what's being asked for, uh, from of them in the VBC world. It all comes back to simplicity. But we oftentimes bucket um, some of the work that we do uh, to uh, improve performance uh, on, on the part of providers just as, a, as a partner to them into three categories. And they all tie back to simplicity in some, in some way, shape, or form. Um, we want uh, uh, there to be efficient prep uh, for a, a patient visit. Uh, so someone coming in who is polychronic, um, it's, you can have a much more effective visit if you've prepared for it uh, to, to uh, kind of set things up for, for the provider uh, within the visit. Uh, thinking about how do we give the provider guidance and, and insight about a care management opportunity or a care gap to be closed in a really friction, frictionless way? How do we avoid becoming part of the noise that so often overwhelms them at the point of care? Um, and then sort of after the visit, how do we sort of wrap around the provider different um, uh, supports uh, such that uh, we can be sure that documentation is is completed effectively? and that we don't have uh, uh, codes uh, and, and conditions going out the door on bills that, that don't have the, 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 the proper documentation to back them up. So uh, all three of those um, are really simplifying, if you think about it, the, the work that the provider uh, has to do with the patient uh, to get to a, a VBC outcome that, um, that, 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 that folks want. I appreciate how you both outlined these issues. It sounds like the complexities are stemming Kind of from those bigger picture issues of compliance and regulatory changes, like you mentioned, Kevin, and then Nick at the provider level and during the care interaction, certainly there's a lot to keep in mind in order to meet those aims of value-based care. And Nick, I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more um, from this provider perspective, how do you anticipate the new CMS risk adjustment updates will affect providers. And maybe you can say a little bit about what that new risk adjustment update is too. Sure. So, you know, it's a, it's a fairly significant uh, update to the payment regime, if you will, that has been sort of designed and, and launched um, with blazing speed. If you uh, consider the, the, the normal arc of, of payment change and how those get worked through a CMS process. Um, what what we found is that uh, it, it's pretty complex, actually, the way things work out. There are three different uh, ways in which a lot of uh, provider organizations are 
are, uh, are going to be affected. Um, so there have been changes to what are, what are called the demographic uh, weights that are used to calculate risk adjustment factors for, for these risk-adjusted VBC populations. Uh, there are changes uh, to the clinical weights themselves of various codes or conditions that are captured and, and managed. And there's also been a change just structurally to how uh, complexity bonuses are, are calculated and paid out. So when you get a, a, a patient who has several uh, conditions that are under management, if you, if you have a certain number of conditions, it sort of qualifies you for a kicker, if you will, because um, you know, you've, 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 you've crossed a threshold into higher complexity that um, CMS has, has, has considered worthy of additional payment consideration. So, so that is actually is, is harder now to hit as well. So a number of different ways that um, payments uh, are, 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 going to, are going to be affected um, by uh, what CMS has done with risk adjustment factor weights. Um, I think that uh, just given the complexity of it, um, you know, uh, what, what I would encourage people do is um, spend time understanding what this means for your organization. And if you need help, um, you, you can definitely talk to uh, Curation Health, and I'm sure there are other organizations uh, that do work like this as well. Curation has kind of a free assessment that we can provide to, to organizations to really give them a feel for how the changes that are going to be rolled out um, beginning in 2024. Um, so we talk about 2026 as being uh, a year when the transition is complete. That transition actually starts um, in, about, in about six months. And so um, we, want to, we want to be sure that every organization knows what's, what's coming at them, because for some organizations, the, the impact is, is fairly significant. Um, but I think that there's a couple of big uh, risks that are, 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 are either introduced or, or exaggerated um, with V28 as that, as that emerges. So number one is um, uh, it takes away certain um, types of opportunities that have been um, captured in the past and frankly have been lucrative to provider organizations. So there are narrow, narrower corridors in which uh, provider organizations are really going to find um, the clinical conditions that have risk adjustment value. Um, with respect to the work that they're doing on, on the, the, the conditions that remain part of the model, I think it creates some execution risk. Um, in order to maintain um, traditional performance, not, not, not just to improve it, but just to maintain it, um, organizations are going to have to do better than they have traditionally at um, closing uh, care gaps and, and managing the conditions that, that, that present in their population. Um, I also think that there's um, going to be uh, increasing focus on uh, condition specificity, and with that, a, an important uh, increasing focus um, on um, the, the just the efficacy of documentation. Um, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of discussion around um, you know as as these payment um, changes take hold, and frankly, the discussion far predates that. But especially as these um, payment uh, changes take hold. Are organizations going to be um, hit uh, more aggressively with, with audits? Um, and they may be, depending on how uh, much backlash there is and how much whiplash there is in the market in terms of the, the, the scramble that um, you know, CMS sees with providers trying to change their coding practices. So I think there's just going to be a lot of focus on um, documentation and making sure that from a compliance standpoint, um, things, are, things, things, are, things are buttoned up. But all of those feel... Uh, important, as well as just expansion of current BBC uh, initiatives. One of the things that I think presents an opportunity, an interesting one, 
um, for a lot of provider organizations is how just fundamental expansion in terms of um, lives under management can actually make some of the financial headaches of V28 go away. And I don't know if that's by design or if it's just coincidental, but certainly in our own modeling um, for, for, for clients and, and also non-clients because we, we, we do the work um, as, a, as a service for free. But one of the things that we, we are seeing with organizations that we're supporting in this, in this math is that um, most organizations do have a, do have a, a, a path a path forward here, um, but it, it's a little bit different than than it, than it was in the past. Yeah, and Eric, if I could just add, uh, from a big picture standpoint, in our conversations with leaders in the industry, there's three things that they're focused on with these CMS regulatory changes, which V28 is essentially the technical definition of these new CMS regulatory changes. Uh, the first one is revenue challenge. Like it's, you know, some of these, these codes that people used frequently and were very beneficial are, are no longer viable or appropriate. Um, so there's global revenue pressure. Um, there's increased operational complexity of understanding what to do, what to focus on, and there's a need for precision. And then third is the greatly enhanced compliance approach of, of just uh, RADV audits and, and other making sure there's accountability for the code selected and the documentation to be matched, mapped to, um, which all drives to getting precision support. How do organizations get the right level of support for their provider network to select the appropriate clinical conditions? vet the right clinical opportunities at a patient level, because at the end of the day, value-based care is about accuracy. How do we determine the most accurate diagnosis and corresponding code for each patient and, and getting the support to do there, to do and to, to succeed in that category is going to be absolutely essential um, in the new CMS regulatory model. Mm. Yeah, really important considerations here. And I think this is something that Nick stated that these changes are expected to go into effect in six short months. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about provider organizations and really all healthcare organizations kind of struggling with healthcare staffing shortages, administrative staff shortages, and you know, navigating all of these changes with fewer staff and all of these changes to things like coding and compliance expectations. It's, it's a tall order for organizations. And so I'm sure they're looking for support. And, you know, I, I'm curious to know what tools or approaches are you seeing really move the dial for organizations that do well in value-based care? And I'm also curious if AI, something that is really ubiquitous right now, if that fits into the picture as well. Um, I'd love to hear both of your take on this, but maybe Nick, you can get us started. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, some of the areas where where we see um, folks investing in performance improvement are consistent with a, with a couple of the things that I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. So we do see uh, lots of um, investments happening uh, in uh, both both people, process and technology that really help to, to set up for an efficient visit uh, between a provider and a patient. Um, we see a, there being a, a lot of investment in uh, analytics. Uh, so we'll come back to this issue in just a, a moment, but uh, across reams of data, um, there you know there's now I think uh, AI and and other techniques for mining that data that have uh, matured to the point where where we can start to extract from those data um, real meaning that uh, can be can be leveraged uh, clinically. 
uh, in in treating with with patients. And I and I I exaggerate I exaggerate the term clinically because there, there's actually uh, behaviorally is a is another way in which we're seeing um, a lot of a lot of AI uh, uh, technologies uh, deployed. But but we'll come back to that. Um, I, I do think that uh, there is um, more uh, to to be said uh, about the process of uh, confirming compliance post-visit. Uh, this is a conversation that we have with uh, many of the organizations that we serve, and we, we, we go about the work a, a little bit different in different cases to sort of suit the organization, but from health plans to providers, I think there have been a lot of uh, in, investments, uh, and, and there will be continued investment, because I think historically it's been an area of underinvestment, but there will be a lot of investment in sort of methodologies that, that uh, give uh, organizations some, some comfort and satisfaction that their, that their compliance um, approach is, uh, is up to snuff. Um, in terms of uh, AI, uh, we see AI being used in all kinds of different ways. Um, you know, I, I think uh, in innumerable, innumerable ways, really, because I, I think of AI like math. Um, you know, where are we going to do math? Well, you do math everywhere. Same, same with AI. But a couple of the AI applications that um, we're seeing a lot of experimentation with, as well as ROI from, are in the space of um, identifying conditions for management. So like I said, there's uh, there, there are technologies now that I think have unlocked the value uh, in a lot of unstructured data that previously was pretty impenetrable. Um, and so just the ability of uh, advanced intelligence to, to, to recognize certain entities and, and, and concepts in fields of data, um, some of it handwritten, um, is certainly rocketing us forward in our ability to, to predict uh, conditions. Um, preventing, uh, sorry, predicting events and behaviors, um, recommending interventions, um, automating certain process steps. We see it playing out in, in, a, in a lot of different ways. And I think, um, you know, really, it'll be really interesting to see what unfolds here in the next uh, two to five years, because there are just so many different applications of AI in our space. I'm excited to see what progress is made. Um, you know, we, at Curation Health, uh, our approach to AI was pretty light in the beginning of our journey, but we recognized that it was going to become more and more important. So we built flexibly to accommodate more and more. And I would say that now our own AI footprint is pretty diverse and all of those different approaches are bringing something new to the process. But I'm sure we're gonna to continue to discover different ways that AI can be supportive of the, of the VBC goals and I'm and, and excited to, to, to continue to learn for ourselves but also see what others are learning as they, as they move forward. And Erica, the, I think that overview of Nick was excellent. I think the only thing I would add is that we started predominantly with humans. And humans are the ideal solution for almost everything in healthcare. Uh, human experts interpreting data is, is powerful. That's how you can make appropriate diagnoses. Health experts, physicians, healthcare teams are the ideal participants to make a final determination. And in our world of prospective uh, risk adjustment are legally required to perform that action. So when we approach technology and AI, it's how do we augment the superpower of the humans in the workflow and in the value care chain to allow them to do heroic acts with spending less time sifting through noisy data. How do we pull out the bright spots, deliver them to, in, in, to them in such a way that they can capitalize on them to benefit the patient in the equation? Yeah, that is so well said, Kevin. It really sounds like, you know, based on 
um, Nick's overview, technology plays such a significant role, and it is really exciting to see what will happen in the next few years, especially with AI. Um, but to your point, of course, this is all to leverage human capabilities. So um, yeah, thank you both for sharing your thoughts there. And so I want to zoom out again. Um, I know we're talking about technology and how that fits into the value-based care model, but also I I'm curious to know which of the levers for success in value-based care are proving more or less difficult for providers to master? And what is it that's really getting in the way? And Kevin, maybe you can say a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks, Erica. From our view, we, we started our conversation today about the importance of simplicity. And today in healthcare delivery, we usually see the opposite, which is massive complexity. Gigantic data sets hundreds of things to sift through to make the appropriate determination for a patient. And the, the real vexing problem is all of this volume has good intentions. All of the technologies and the, and the capabilities that we have at our disposal are developed, engineered, and deployed to help. The challenge is sometimes the byproduct of that solution is volume. And we have this, the term we frequently talk about in the industry and from a curation health perspective of the challenge of data maximalism, where we're perceiving value and the potential of a large data set versus we subscribe to data minimalism, which is what is the minimum data this physician and care team needs to maximize the health of the patient and only deliver that. If I was to say one of the biggest headwinds is just access to data, access to a very small data set that's highly actionable is one of the key barriers because if a physician is not being supported by technology, they have to go through lots of records, lots of lab values, uh, gigantic medication lists, other notes and other uh, documents from other healthcare organizations. And the biggest constraint is time. Most of our organizations are still operating in a very limited time module where the physician has limited time to prepare for a clinical visit and limited time with a patient. So because of that constraint, the, the challenge is trying to sift through tons of information. And our goal as an organization and an industry should be, how do we develop the right information in the smallest and easiest way possible, deliver it to the end user to enable those superpowers we talked about, how we get them the right information for them to make the right clinical diagnosis and action for the patient. Yeah, just uh, to, to, to add to that, uh, that distraction concept is so important and it's so problematic. Um, one of the, the, the things that Curation Health learned a couple of years ago in our own work was that um, in lots of situations, you could actually facilitate uh, more provider engagement of some of the clinical opportunities that were presenting for the patient with a shorter list of opportunities. Right, and, and and it could be the same things that were there before, but because uh, the provider wasn't looking in their sidebar at uh, uh, I'm sure a daunting uh, list of items that didn't have much to do with the patient's reason for visit, 
uh, you know, I think that, that they were regularly being uh, discouraged uh, from, from engaging with some of the opportunities. So we figured out just for ourselves that by, by narrowing the aperture in some cases, you could actually get more action. So I think, it, and it's just a perfect example of what Kevin was saying, just getting rid of uh, distraction, sometimes, um, um, you know, more uh, opportunity and more guidance works against you. Um, the other thing I would just point out, and I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm blowing any minds by saying this, but in, in healthcare, we have a, we have a, a, a longstanding change management management challenge just as an industry. Um, and so I think this, because of how many new things we're talking about from technology to workflow, to incentives, it takes a while for organizations, um, to, to, to make some of the maneuvers, um, uh, that are required to really do well in VBC. And I think, I think we still see and suffer from some of that, although it's certainly better than I would say it was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, change management just remains an Achilles heel in the industry and, and something that we always um, will we'll spend time working on. Yeah, for sure. And I appreciate both of your responses. I'm really picking up on that theme of the need for simplicity. Um, and I love the the term that's new to me now, data minimalism. That's really uh, smart. And I know that in order to really empower healthcare organizations and our providers at the point of care, it's what's needed. So um, thank you again for your explanations there. So I think to kind of close our discussion today, I'm sure those who are listening are probably wondering, you know, if they're grappling with these issues of complexities and value-based care, achieving that simplicity that we're talking about. I'm sure they're curious to know what challenges or opportunities they should really be prioritizing first. Um, so I'm wondering if you can speak to any kind of prioritization mechanism or a sequence that they might abide by. Um, Nick, wondering if you can share your thoughts there first. Yeah, well, one of the things Kevin said is certainly true, uh, which, it, well, <laughs> uh, all the things that Kevin has said are true, but the one that he just said that is true in this particular situation is the one is the one about access to data. So uh, it, this will certainly trip up a lot of organizations. Um, data and data management is not a strength of a lot of provider organizations. Um, I don't think I'm offending anyone by saying that. I think it's pretty widely recognized as true, but how do we get um, how do we get uh, our, our hands on um, the, the right kind of data and preserve good data hygiene such that it can inform really important decisions that we're trying to make in BBC? Um, a lot of the ways that we're accustomed uh, to archiving uh, decisions and data in a fee-for-service world are, are not adequate to support kind of the continuous management required in a, in a VBC context. So I think there's there's that. There's just kind of thinking about um, what data is needed to, to do some of uh, the, the important new work and how do we get it into shape for use? I think the fast following concept is how do we generate uh, performance visibility? Um, it's really something as we work with, with clients, what happens when we turn on certain types of reporting where suddenly a provider or a, a, a provider administrator for the first time can see and, and has access to you know, near-time data on the decisions um, that are being made sort of at the point of care. Uh, so being able to um, create that visibility and start conversations around it, I think is, is, is super um, essential. 
Um, in terms of you know what else uh, organizations can be be thinking about, you know, it's a, it's going to be a little bit different from organization to organization. But I would say, as you step back and think about starting to engage your provider organization, you you, you want to find the champions. But also, I see a lot of organizations. Um, taking as early steps this idea that they're gonna they're gonna pick the bottom performers and 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 go in and and engage them and turn things around. I just don't see that happening much in 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 our uh, experience. Um, I see them coming along, but coming along after some time. In in my mind, uh, if you really want to start moving the organization uh, uh, toward a, a better posture with respect to VBC, you have to engage the middle of the, 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 the medical staff. And you have to engage the, the providers that just need the extra support. They're not philosophically opposed to a lot of what we're trying to do. They just need things to be easy enough for them that it's not a big hassle uh, to participate. And I think that's the right place to, to, to start when it comes to engaging the organization. Um, my final thought, and I, and I talk about this a lot with organizations um, because it, it makes or breaks your AI, is you really have to know what you're aiming to do. Um, as uh, as a provider organization or as a health plan, and by that I mean, what are your what are your KPIs? Uh, what are what are the goals that you're trying to advance? I think in in all of the um, the the thrill that is uh, accompanying um, AI innovation, uh, a lot of organizations lose sight a little bit of what they're actually trying to do with it, and you can find yourself wandering in the wilderness with AI for a long time and spending a lot of money and getting nowhere. If the investments that you're making don't focus on your your, your key performance goals, uh, and you're not actually uh, driving toward AI outputs that are going to help to make a decision, so I always think you know be focused, especially as you get started. You need some early wins, um, and so uh, I, I think uh, having a sense of where you can get those wins and how you can start driving momentum in the in the organization, and then add to complexity and nuance after that point is a really important concept that, that folks would, would uh, do well to, to uh, consider. And Erica, the only thing I'd add to what Nick was just describing is when we're approaching organizations that are new to value-based care or seeking to really enhance their value-based care efforts, the mantra, think big, start small is really important. I think sometimes organizations boil the ocean and change 50 variables and at the end of the day don't know which ones are the levers that are making an impact. And that level of noise, chaos, and change management required to go big from the start is very daunting. So thinking big about where we're trying to get to as an organization, I think Nick's description of the classic, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What information do we need to solve it? Who needs to participate? And how do we measure success is germane to value-based care and the journey to, um, to, to get to an endpoint that is successful and matters. Absolutely. Thank you both so much, Kevin and Nick, for your time and your insights today. I, I think that what you just said, Kevin, about thinking big, but starting small really sums up the pragmatic ways that you've outlined how to approach value-based care, whether someone's just starting or they're kind of in the thick of it. Um, so I'd like to thank you both again for being here. Pleasure to speak. Thank you, Erica. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. And we'd also like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Curation Health. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.